get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney. Justin, what are you thinking about this week? Think about a lot of things, you know, I'm, I'm blessed, but I recently I've, I've been because of some of my social media interactions, I've been thinking more and more about the psychology of Internet troll. Uh, and these are people who basically go around the Internet trying to provoke others and picking fights. Uh, seems like a pretty sad existence, but maybe we should take the time to look into exactly what's going on here. You know, most of the and campaign trolls come from the right, you know, from people. Yeah. Uh, who don't like the term social justice for Christians or for from, you know, the kind of pro-Trump Christians that don't like to be critiqued. So the question that I, I've been uh, wrestling with is what drives the desires to fight and cause havoc rather than find solutions and common ground? Uh, Brother, where do, do you respond to trolls? <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, I don't really too often respond to like, uh, People that I don't know who are just trying to pick a fight, uh, you know, they don't have a, uh, you know, their profile picture is like an egg uh, uh, still. Um, But unfortunately, sometimes I get drawn into responding to people who are acting like Russian trolls, but uh, but have a face. (laughs) Uh, Right. So uh, but I think I've gotten a little better, better at that. But sometimes I'm just too. too, too earnest thinking people actually want to talk. <laughs> right. And that's the thing about trolls. It's not really about coming to some type of understanding. It's just about causing the havoc and causing the commotion. And we'll get uh, to that a little bit later in the show. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, th- there has been so much news on, on that front. And we're learning just a lot more about uh, how this works, both from like a international relations perspective uh but but also just how how social media works on on our minds and and in our lives uh but but first before we get to that let's let's talk about uh some of the some of the latest news coming out of the Trump White House uh and that is you know apparently in you know an oval office meeting that took you know 45 minutes uh the idea was presented by the South Korean ambassador uh, uh, to, to the U.S. and uh, is is now going to uh, going to happen at least now. Uh, at, at this point, it's going to happen. President Trump's going to meet with the North uh, Korean leader uh, in, in what will be uh, a historic meeting if it takes place. And obviously, there are a range of concerns, but Justin. Uh, uh, sh- should President Trump be sitting down with uh, with Kim Jong-un? Probably not. Uh, the interesting thing about it is that apparently he accepted this invitation on the spot without even talking to his foreign policy team. Uh, he's saying that he wants to have a conversation with North Korea about giving up their nuclear weapons. Something to understand about this type of conversation is that no sitting president has ever met with a North Korean leader. And the reason for that is because you have to be very careful not to legitimize this kind of regime, a regime who has so many uh, human rights violations and all the other things that come along with North Korea. Uh, They don't keep their promises and they have such a bad reputation that no one expects them to keep their promises. Many people, uh, Michael, are worried that um, North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, will simply use this meeting as propaganda. Uh, that he'll use it as validation to act like they're a legitimate country and that he has no intention to disarm. All the information that we've heard coming from North Korea, whether it be their nuclear test and just his his rhetoric, sounds like he really is excited about their arms. And so for them just to be coming to the table to uh, to potentially give those up seems a little bit odd. And again, the fact that the president just accepted this invitation without even uh, really going over it with the experts is is problematic. 
Yeah, and, and just to clarify, uh, the South Korean ambassador was was in the Oval Office meeting, but it was actually uh, the South South Korean National Security Advisor who raised the idea. According to the New York Times, I just want to clarify my my earlier comment. Uh, you know, Justin, it's a uh, it, it's interesting. President Obama, former President Obama, you'll remember, got into all this trouble uh, with both his Democratic primary opponents in 2008, and then uh, and then during the the general election in 2008 for saying that he'd meet with sort of uh, meet with dictators and and meet with uh, the leaders of you know America's enemies, uh, and and so it's been interesting to see. The very people who um, uh, critiqued uh, President Obama as uh, sort of being naive for that or uh, weakening America, finding ways to contort this sort of, you know, 45 minute turnaround in American foreign policy. You know, on the other side, you know, I want to point out that if uh, if President Obama had announced he was meeting with Kim Jong Un, like I I think uh, a, a good number of Democrats would be like, you know, finally, we're taking the diplomatic route. You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, we're we're right. really you know uh, uh, turning down tensions. Now there are good reasons for that. Uh, Barack Obama never tweeted out that uh, his button was bigger than than Un's, and uh, and so uh, you know, I think President Obama during his first year, year and a half, I think uh, because he operated as a traditional president in terms of using you know, basic protocol and his statements looking like presidential statements. Uh, I, I think that that helps with the perception issue, but um, it, it's, it, I think it's easy for me to say, you know, tr- Trump isn't going to know what, what to do in this meeting. On the other hand, he is, he is president. So, it, you know, it, p- part of it is, you know, he thinks he's a deal maker. Americans elected, uh, 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 elected, uh, a man who saw himself in that way. So I think, you know, when it was raised that uh, he'd be able to get in the room and really uh, see this guy face to face that, uh, that that he thought, well, well, yeah, if I get in the room with them, we, we can make a deal happen. Uh, the problem, of course, Justin, is you know, this is not The Apprentice. And this is this is high stakes, not just high stakes politics. This is uh, this is high stakes foreign relations where you got nuclear weapons on the table. Uh, and so, uh, it's going to be, it's, it's, the- it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, if, uh, if President Trump allows for or wants sort of more traditional communications around a meeting like this, both leading up to the meeting and after the meeting, or if, you know, he's going to be on Twitter, uh, uh, you know, 30 minutes after the meeting saying, you know, Kim Jong-un was, was a loser. I, I ran circles around him. <laughs> right. There's no, there's no telling how he's going to respond. But sadly, you know, the biggest problem with this is that the president's reputation precedes him. And it sounds just like another example of his lack of foreign policy knowledge, uh, of his lack of preparation in general. And as you pointed out, this is the highest of stakes. This isn't somewhere where we should, you know, just this isn't something we should play around with. Uh, Senator Cory Gardner said that there should be no meeting um, uh, to take place until there are concrete, verifiable steps towards denuclearization. Um, otherwise, we don't know if this is a serious conversation or, or not. I'm no uh, foreign policy expert, but I tend to agree with that. CIA director Mike Pompeo said that the president knows what he's getting into, that his eyes are open and that he's ready for these conversations. And that the reason that North Korea is coming to the table is because of U.S. led sanctions that are crippling them. So basically, they're saying North Korea has to come to the table because they're really getting beat up here. And so, in other words, we have the leverage. The president knows what he's doing. But I don't know if if there's too many people that feel comfortable uh, with the president going in there by himself uh, and not being really prepared. Right. And, you know, China is, you know, one of those players that is not so comfortable. It's going to be interesting to see what kind of pressure they exert to either get in the meeting or uh, or or to, you know, p- potentially um, through explicit or sort of covert means, make sure it doesn't 
doesn't happen. China has a lot at stake in in this, as does so much of the rest of the world. But China, in particular, given their their status in the region, uh, and so you know, again, when you're dealing with foreign policy issues, uh, uh, not that you're not just dealing with what your country thinks and the internal politics of that. You you also have other major powers who are. Uh, you know, I think we're maybe thrown for a curveball by this, given that it hasn't uh, up until that 45 minute meeting, it hadn't been American policy to to meet with uh, meet with North Korean leader. Uh, and and I, I'm not sure Trump understands that it's a significant thing to uh, to, to change course on a question like that so so quickly. And so uh, it, it's it's going to be interesting. I'm not convinced the meeting's actually going to happen. I think there's a there's a long, long runway between here and there where either the president's own staff or foreign powers could um, could 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 interject and uh, and and make sure the meeting doesn't happen. But if it does happen, you know, it'll be the, the most important international moment for this president. Yeah, it sounds to me like he said something, accepted the invitation, and now everybody's trying to cover up for that mistake. And maybe they do find a way to get out of it. It's just hard to imagine that uh, North Korea is in a place right now where they're really going to disarm. Right. Well, Justin, let's let's take a quick break, uh, and after after we return from the break, uh, let's let's talk about Stormy Daniels and evangelicals. Uh, we'll be right back. We're back with uh, the Church Politics Podcast, and I think, Justin, we haven't talked too much uh, about this specific topic on the show, but it's come up in a lot of reporting. Uh, Mike Gerson, the former Bush speechwriter, is out this week with uh, a cover story for The Atlantic on how and why evangelicals uh, uh, white evangelicals in particular came to support President Trump and uh, what it means. And th- this uh, this plays a, a pretty, pretty significant role in the anxiety and, and frustration with that. Uh, so, so so let's let's talk about it. Uh, a, 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 a credible report came out that would have tanked seemingly any other uh, presidency um, that uh, the Trump campaign paid off uh, a uh, basically a porn star uh, who Trump had an affair with uh, while married. Uh, I believe it was a $130,000 payoff um, in order to make sure the story didn't come out during the election. there have been all sorts of uh, ways that Trump's evangelical supporters have uh, either tried to poo-poo the issue or even uh, come up with some kind of a theological, the- a theological, uh, political explanation for it. But Justin, do you think it's a big deal that uh, that there hasn't been? That, that this hasn't been the breaking point or are, are you at a place where, where, or kind of I am where, uh, it's like if, 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 if access Hollywood wasn't the breaking point, if, you know, dun, 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 <laughs> you know, A, B, C, D through Z, if those weren't breaking points, uh, then I'm just not surprised that we haven't seen, you know, a, a huge, huge jump over the ship of, the Trump faith fan club. Yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, it's hard to say it's not a big deal. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't really even want to talk about this issue. Um, yeah. I, I was turning through the channels the other day and almost every news station was talking about this for like hours. And I was, I really just did not want to talk about it, but because it's the president, because of what is alleged, it is a big deal. Uh, I just feel like it takes away from a lot of the other policy issues we could be talking about. So it's not that it's um, insignificant. It's that there's so many other significant things dealing with policy and it take time. It takes time away from those issues. We still have the dreamers out there not knowing what's going to happen to them 
We still don't have any decision on guns. We still don't have any good policy when it comes to uh, student loans and how that is affecting millennials and others. All these things are sitting around and we have to talk about this uh, Stormy Daniels controversy. Uh, So it's just frustrating in that way. Um, You know, this revelation, I don't think it was a surprise to anyone. Uh, Trump's exploits are well documented. uh, So I don't think anybody was taken by surprise. A point that needs to be made is that this probably isn't the first time that a president has done something similar to this. Right. Right. He's not the first president that has some very shady sexual activity. Uh, He lives in a different age. And so it's going to be out there. That does not mean that it's any more acceptable or that it should just be uh, disregarded or defended. And that's where we get into this conversation, because some pro-Trump evangelicals have stayed true to form and they have refused to call Trump's behavior out. Uh, Robert Jeffers said that basically uh, whether the president violated the uh, seventh commandment or not is totally is not totally relevant to our support for him. He said, we support him because of his policies and strong leadership. And that statement to me and, and, and the and campaign spoke on this is everything that the Christian political witness shouldn't be. Right. Now that statement is less about giving an explanation or explaining anything to outsiders. What Jeffers is doing here is he's sending a message to Christians and basically saying we should still support him because it's about the policy and it's about his leadership. That's what that statement is really about. Um, and it's unfortunate because I don't think any politician should have pastors or any Christians waiting in the wings to defend them. Now, this wasn't a direct defense, right? It was kind of a, a, a indirect val- an indirect defense or kind of a, a misdirection. But at the end of the day, he's trying to make sure that people don't leave Trump because of this. And I don't think any Christian should be playing that role with politicians and when they misbehave. And it happens on both sides. Right. So we all know politicians who say, man, I'm in trouble. Is there a pastor? Is there someone in the faith community that I can get to vouch for me right now? Christians should not be playing that role. Uh, more so, we should be in the role of critique and trying to correct people, but having grace. And so we can have grace. And not say that every mistake should end someone's career, but whether we should be caping and and running to the rescue of people who have clearly done something wrong, uh, I disagree with that stance. It's just really sad that we would kind of exchange power uh, for giving him impunity. Um, It's just the sad state of affairs. And this conversation has gone on and on, but somebody needs to step up and and do something about it. Yeah. And listen, if 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 these guys don't want to. and they are they are mostly mostly guys that have been in the in the inner circle uh from a faith perspective with with a couple exceptions uh if they don't want to say you know we're we're leaving the president you know the the very least that that can and should happen is all these stories about sort of waiting for the magical, you know, moment where evangelicals, you know, jump ship as if there will be some sort of ceremony. Uh, That's just not how politics works. Uh, Politics is about prudential decision making. So, so I'm, I'm fine with, well, I'm not fine. I'd argue with, with these folks who would say, you know, I think overall president Trump's done a great job. I, I don't agree with that. But but how about just being able to uh, to call out what is bad, affirm what is good and say, listen, I'm not on anybody's team. Uh, I engage in politics in a way that uh, that, that with with my my neighbors uh, uh, best in mind. Uh, but I'm not here out of an identity thing. And, and it almost seems like that, that this whole narrative about. It's too much driven by what team you're on, even in this context. I know that there's a lot of people, and we've talked quite a bit about uh, folks who are officially sort of aligned with the Trump advisory uh, committee. But, you know, they could just diffuse this whole thing by saying, of course, it's insane uh, that that these allegations have have happened. Uh, I, I, you know, like they're not they're not. they they don't have to be wearing the t-shirt. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Just like this is politics shouldn't work in a way that you have, especially members of the clergy on a team in the first place. 
and then having to like uh do press conferences when they when they leave no they should just be there seeking the good where they've been uh invited to to do that i completely understand what you're saying it's all tribal and so it's not even about the substance it's not whether he was wrong or not whether the behavior is acceptable or not it's about protecting our tribe right or wrong and there is nothing within the christianity as i understand it that defends that to say that says that is a proper way for Christians to respond. Now, the other thing I want to point out is that anytime you bring up something that went wrong with Trump, you always have people say, well, we don't expect our presidents to be perfect. Okay. Let's be very clear. There's a long distance <laughs> between being perfect and being where Trump is right now. Uh, character and behavior have always mattered. Evangelicals especially have made that point. And I think to a certain extent they were right. Well, then it has to matter now. Why does it matter? Because he's a leader. Yeah. Our kids are watching him. Other countries are watching him. And if we defend someone with such bad behavior, that's a problem. Now, again, it doesn't mean that every time someone makes a mistake that we automatically have to kick them out of office. Um, it doesn't mean that that takes away from any policy that a politician has put up or or the leadership that they've shown. But at the end of the day, you have to say something and be clear about where, where your stance is because ca- character and behavior matter and they must continue to matter. Yeah. I, I really don't have, don't have much else to, else to say, Justin. It's, uh, it's, you know, just a, just a frustrating, a frustrating thing that we have, uh, you know, that we're, we're in a place, you know, arguably, uh, you know, the second the second president out of four where uh these kinds of issues have been put to the fore of our national dialogue it, again as you said to open up the conversation uh at a time when we have really important issues to be talking about that uh things like this uh, help suck the oxygen out of out of the room and so uh we're going to end that conversation there and move to uh, move to uh, an important subject right after this break. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And we're back with the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, Justin, this week, many people are going to be watching to see uh, how the Senate moves forward on a, a bill drafted by Senator Mike Crapo of Idaho uh, that critics are saying is undermines Dodd-Frank, uh, which was the financial regulation bill that uh, passed during uh, President Obama's first term. And part of the conversation around this is that last week, 16 Senate Democrats joined uh, Republicans in a procedural vote to advance a package indicating that they, uh, these 16 Democrats, at least uh, some of them, if not all of them, uh, are potentially going to join in a vote this week to actually support the package. Uh, there have been uh, op-eds and uh, Elizabeth Warren, the senator for Massachusetts, has really been uh, uh, speaking out against even her fellow colleagues who would consider supporting this. Uh, it, it's going to be, uh, I think, telling and indicative of the state of the Democratic Party. It'll be another one of those markers to see how this how this vote goes this week, uh, given how closely tied financial problems and sort of distrust of financial institutions was to President Trump's success and therefore Republican success in previous elections and uh, sort of Democratic reputation having to go through the, the bailout process, uh, having to go through uh, uh, criticisms of President Obama and Democrats not, you know, arresting financial heads and and uh, 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 putting them through uh, through a, a legal process, a court process. That just in, how should we be thinking about Democrats joining Republicans uh, to undermine some of the protections that were put in place to make sure something like uh, the 2007 crisis never happens again? Yeah, I think the first question we need to ask is, why is this a priority right now? Um, I don't know. I haven't heard anything about the banks being about to fail, about there to be being a run on the banks or anything like that. So you have to ask, why is this 
a priority. Um, now, let's just go a little, through a little history as well. You know, the Dodd-Frank regulations were signed by President Obama in 2010 after the 2008 financial crisis, where, wherein banks uh, were giving out predatory loans. Americans were losing their homes. Uh, the economy fell apart and banks were subsequently bailed out. And then after being bailed out, they refused to loan money to many of the people who they had hurt. Now, this crushed the middle class. And I've said and I'll say again that I think it's one of the biggest injustices we've seen uh, in decades. You know, this was this shouldn't have shouldn't have gone down this way. Uh, now, the Senate wants to ease these regulations. I find it interesting that we can't get bipartisan gun bill. We can't get a gun bill. We can't get legislation for the dreamers. And I said this last week. But somehow we found the political will and the motivation to come together for big banks. Now, this raises a question is why? Why? Why are we coming together for this right now? Um, this is part of the reason why people don't trust our politics. This is part of the reason why people think money plays too big of a role in our politics. And we really need to think this out. Now, Elizabeth Warren has said she doesn't understand how anybody in the U.S. Senate uh, can vote for a bill that's going to increase the likelihood of another taxpayer bailout. And Democrats have come to her and basically said that uh, she shouldn't be crit criticizing uh, Democrats ahead of the midterms. And of course, that is ridiculous. If a politician thinks that others are supporting bad policy, they have an obligation to criticize and to speak out. Right. They almost have a fiduciary duty to say something and to keep saying something to make sure that the people hear it. Um, no one should get a pass, especially on a policy that's going to be so significant. Uh, this is a conversation that needs to be had. And if you can find the political will to deregulate banks, then why can't we find the political will to do everything else? We have a lot of politicians going around saying how everything is broken and nothing comes together. But it came together for this issue. Right. And that leaves a question as to why. Yeah, I mean, I mean, part of the answer and it's. You know, it's cynicism inducing to be sure is that, you know, when institutions like banks feel a pinch that causes Congress to move in a way that they don't move. Uh, when the American people are feeling a pinch, a pinch, the American people need to. In some cases, literally have a mortal wound for Congress to act with the kind of uh, with the kind of focus <laughs> that. They're moving on this on this bill, uh, and so it shows sort of the uh, the discrepancy in who is heard in our political process. Now, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how this vote takes place, and. and you know, the interesting thing is, you know, Democrats in the Senate are not in control of how this vote goes down. So, you know, you would you would think uh, if Democrats were in control that uh, changes would be made to help alleviate some of the pressure from these moderate senators uh, on their left. But Senator McConnell is driving this car and he doesn't have any interest in alleviating the political pressure that Democrats are feeling. And so to me, this seems like another sort of master stroke, politically speaking, of Senator McConnell. Uh, and I don't see him letting the pressure off uh, politically. And then, you know, we're just going to see how these Democrats uh, Democrats vote. Many of them are up for reelection in 2018. And, you know, that they have sort of the voters concerns with this to worry about. But they also have to worry about their. Uh, their campaign fundraising. And so there's just a vice in so many different ways. And you would, uh, you, you would, you would hope that th this process is going to move forward with folks understanding that so many of the social problems that we have in this country, the economic problems that we have in this country can, can be, can be pointed back to the 2007-2008 crisis 
and this should be a third rail. Deregulating banks uh, 10 years after the financial crisis should be a third rail in American politics. And for so many reasons that, you know, implicate our political process, it's it's not. And every everybody should be clear on what this did to the middle class. I mean, this this was a huge problem that almost destroyed the middle class and for sure kicked more people out of the middle class who are still struggling to get back into it till this day. So I don't want to take that lightly. And this doesn't mean, you know, this commentary doesn't mean that Dodd Frank can't use some some changes can't be revised. I sit on the uh, advisory board of a smaller bank, and I know that Dodd-Frank was actually really hard on smaller banks. It put them into regulations that were really meant for the larger banks, and so it could use some cutting in that regard. That's not the point. The point is, why is this a, a priority, especially for the big banks, and where does this political will come from? What is motivating people to move on this right now? And so we won't spend any more time on that, but but give it some thought. And, and some of our politicians need to think twice about their priorities. Jason, what do you say? Uh, we'll take uh, our last break. Uh, but when we get back, let's let's talk a wrinkle in time. Uh, just a lot of interesting conversation over the week. And we want to dig into it a little bit. We'll be right back after the break. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back at the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, and uh, Justin, uh, I had a lot of fun this past weekend. Uh, Melissa and I had a chance to go see A Wrinkle in Time, the uh, uh, new movie. Uh, it, Wrinkle in Time was one of my favorite books growing up. Uh, it really spoke to me on a very personal level with and what was happening in my family at the time. And then... When I became a Christian, I was able to look back at the book and see all these sorts of seeds were planted uh, that 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 I think helped me come to faith. And so uh, when I heard that Brinkland Time was coming to the big screen and heard all the people that were involved whose work I loved, I was uh, I was really excited every time the trailer would come on. Uh, Melissa and I would. You know, I'd kind of nudge Melissa out of excitement. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's been uh, a, a little disappointing to see. It was a little disappointing to see the bad reviews. Uh, I want to say at the outset, uh, this is not like the most important thing <laughs> to, to to discuss. I think there are, there are some important elements to this conversation. That's why we're talking about on this show. But sometimes these sort of like cultural conversations can can blow up to uh take on a level of importance that uh that that really it's it's best to not get so heated about uh, about things and so uh with with that said um just now I don't know if you've had a chance to see the movie I thought it was better than the critics uh the many of the critics said I I I thought it was a beautiful, imaginative movie. I think some really smart casting decisions were made that actually elevated important aspects of the book, um, rather than, uh, sort of, uh, sort of, sort of changed, uh, the book. Uh, Megan Charles's relationship in particular, I thought was really, uh, poignant. Uh, but as many, uh, writers have pointed out, uh, the movie does excise the Christian influence from it uh, explicitly uh, just about entirely, uh, including using some lines from the book that mention a one in particular that mentions Jesus in the book. And they used the same line and just took Jesus out. <laughs> uh, and so there are uh, a, a lot of folks writing about this. Tara Burton. Uh, uh, Tara Isabella Burton wrote in Vox that Madeline Langle, who was the author of A Wrinkle in Time and uh, sort of ecumenical Christian, Madeline Langle's uh, Christianity was vital to A Wrinkle in Time. That's the Vox story. And she cites her, her Vox colleague, Alyssa Wilkinson, who had a similar critique. Uh, there are so many complicated things about this. It's a kid's movie. So some people are saying, 
Well, you know, uh, can't expect kids to get into weighty, you know, theological stuff, even though the book covered it. Uh, one reason why a lot of the arguments about this are not holding up um, is because we actually know why these uh, why these uh, allusions and why these references were taken out. And it's not because of uh, of it wasn't just by mistake. Jennifer Lee, who was the screenwriter, she's responsible for a Frozen and the upcoming sort of Olaf movie, I believe. She said when asked about why the religious uh, elements, the Christian elements were excised, she said, I think there are a lot of elements of what Lingle wrote that we have progressed on as a society, and we can now move on to the other elements. Basically, she was saying Lingle had to had to include that Christian stuff uh, because she was trying to speak to uh, and uh, uh, impact an audience. But now that's uh, Christianity is irrelevant. Uh, Justin, uh, again, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but uh, have you been reading some of the stories? And what do you think just generally about art that sort of removes faith from the 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 worlds that they create. Yeah. The first thing that came to mind for me, and I haven't seen the movie. Um, I honestly didn't know anything about the book before, before this movie either. So I'll, I'll admit that. Um, the first thing that stuck out to me was the motivation behind removing the biblical references and the references to Jesus and the motivation being that society, we as society had progressed past that um, was, was problematic. Um, I think it speaks to one of the major flaws in progressivism that you can progress past everything. Uh, you can progress past truth and everything else. Um, and uh, you know, I understand why people take that seriously. It's, 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 you know, she was a screenwriter. She was chose to do that, but it's important to know why she did it and what's behind, you know, what's behind that. Uh, I, I think, you know, I just seem to think because she said she did it to make it more inclusive. And I, I just seem I, I tend to think that secularizing something doesn't really make it neutral. Uh, doesn't really necessarily make it more inclusive. When you remove religious themes, uh, symbols, and standards, you're really removing the heart of it. You're removing the essence of it. And whether this is a child's book or not, I mean, you even said that it planted seeds in you that were helpful helpful down the road. I mean, that stuff matters. And so you're not necessarily making it more inclusive. You're making it. Uh, more formless, uh, more generic. Um, and, and in a way, uh, this kind of, to me, relates in a way to how where many people of color find themselves even in politics in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this film highlights black women and black girls and it creates positive images for black women and black girls. And I think that's important. But then it removes faith. Right. And similarly, for people of color in politics, if you want to be seen if you want your people to be recognized, it seems like you have to go to the left where your faith has to be removed from the equation. And if you want the faith side of the politics to be, you know, if, you, if that's important to you, then you kind of go over to the right where the recognition of your color and your culture has to be removed from it. Yeah. That's unfortunate. And I think Christians do need to speak out on that. And when we create, you can I mean, when somebody else creates something or takes something and redoes it, you can only say so much. Right. But as we create and who we support in different creations and art, make sure that that's something you have that combination that we can talk about people of color without taking the faith out. We can talk about faith without taking the color and culture out of the conversation. And it's on us to do that. We can't expect people to to do that for us. We need to do that through who we support and by what we create ourselves. Right. Yeah. It just sends a. Uh, it, it, it sends a message, it especially sends a message when. Uh, when Rumi is quoted in the movie, Winston Churchill is quoted in the movie. I believe Gandhi is quoted in the movie. Uh, there are sort of new age spiritual um, uh, 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 elements of the movie. And what I what I would hope the progressives would understand is that it, uh, when you when you excise Christianity from expressions like this, but include uh, other religious expressions or other points of view. 
you're not only uh, showing a weird sort of uh, exclusionary uh, uh, attention to Christianity, which is shared by a lot of people, including uh, it's shared by a lot of people. But you're also showing uh, you're also showing that uh, you don't take other people's faith seriously. You you, you don't take Rumi seriously uh, based on what he was saying. So that's sort of like a a cute cultural thing that that uh, that everybody can sort of uh, uh, sort of hear, but not take seriously. Uh, And and so you're really kind of just dishonoring everybody involved when when you do that. You know, I did want to. Uh, point out, l- like you said, uh, you know, we we this isn't like uh, um, oh gosh, Hollywood, dun dun dun. You, you know, this isn't like uh, uh, what what was interesting about the reaction is that you actually had some religiously literate writers, even movie critics, who were in a position to point this out. And so, if we're going to, you know, I think talk about. Rightfully so, uh, the intentional excising of Christianity from this movie, uh, and sort of the way that in this particular instance, uh, in sort of arts and culture, uh, faith was removed. I also just want to say, I think we're in a golden age of, uh, of journalism when it comes to religion. When, when you have, movie critics across the board. I mean, the, the New Yorker was pointing this out. Uh, uh, again, Vox was pointing this out in all kinds of major institutions. When you have, uh, journalists and critics in place who, who have this kind of knowledge, have this kind of sensitivity. When you have a Washington Post, uh, editorial staff that, uh, is Full from front to back of religiously literate columnists from Christine Emba to Liz Brunig to Karen Tumulty to EJ Dion, uh, again, New York Times, uh, The Week, uh, uh, Yahoo. Uh, let's not have such a, um, a bunker mentality and sort of a, oh man, Christians can, are never represented anywhere. Actually, they're, they're represented. A lot of places and not just Christians, but people who know about Christianity, know about other religions. And, and that's something to something to celebrate. And, and maybe this will be a lesson to Disney that the approach that they took was something like Narnia, where the faith elements were kept in. But I think in a very inclusive way that kids of all faiths and backgrounds could enjoy the movie, that uh, that was a better approach than than intentionally removing Christian material from a book that is inherently Christian. I agree. Well, I think the last topic is to return to where we started. Uh, This report has come out and actually there's been a major report, but also a bunch of uh, uh, in my hometown newspaper, there was a report on how Russian trolls, uh, uh, actually used the uh, the death of an African American in police custody uh to uh to promote a rally in Buffalo and to provoke uh uh tension uh and then of course we see it happening at the national level as well uh Justin you were particularly interested in this uh, New York Times story that doesn't take on the uh the international sort of the Russian aspect so much, but it does, does talk about trolls. Uh, and this is the, this was in the New York times Sunday review when smug liberals met conservative trolls. Uh, what stuck out uh, to you about this article? I know it touched on some themes that, that you've been, you've been talking about for, for quite a while. Yeah, it touches heavily just on the state of our discourse and why our discourse is is just so bad right now to where, again, we can't even get to solutions because there's no we can't get to the premise. We can't get past the argument and everyone's screaming, but nobody's listening to one another. And I thought uh, this article, which was called uh, When Trolls Met Smug Liberals, it it was in The New York Times by Catherine uh, Mangu Ward, and she's the chief editor, excuse me. Of Reason magazine, which a reason, which of reason, which is a publication, uh, 
And I think it's a liber- libertarian publication, if I'm yep. not mistaken. But I think I think it touches. I don't agree with the whole article, but I think it touches on some interesting concepts. Uh, she starts by she starts by saying that modern American discourse can seem disjointed to the point of absurdism when the loudest voices on the left talk about people on the right. Uh, they talk about them as being beyond the pale or dupes of their betters it is with an air of barely concealed smugness. Uh, right wingers respond by doubling down on whatever politically incorrect sentiment brought on the disdain in the first place. She says that the explosion of smugs versus trolls of uh, this phase of political discourse is traceable to 2004, uh, where there was a confrontation between John Stewart and the political commentator Tucker Carlson in the waning uh, days of crossfire. And this was a very interesting back and forth. But we've heard so much about, you know, uh, guys like Tucker Carlson and John Stewart. We know that John Stewart on his show, The Daily Show, really uh, mocked conservatism quite a bit, really mocked uh, 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 Republicanism and, and Republicans quite a bit. And in a way, it almost became the way that liberals talk about politics now. Right. I mean, if you look at the memes that we see, if you look at how people respond to Republicans in general or to working class whites in general, a lot of it is based on what John Stewart kind of set up, the the model that he put out there. Now, I don't really blame him because he was just doing what he does. He's a comedian. But I do blame us for allowing that to be the primary way that we analyze politics and culture. And on the right, you really get this very strong trolling where people are just you say one thing that goes against Trump or you say something that goes against kind of conservatism and people are coming from everywhere. A lot of times they're uh, anonymous and just really attacking. And this goes on on social media a lot. And the sad thing is it's not just contained in social media, but we've talked about this before. Some of our favorite commentators or commentators we respected before have even fed into this because this is what people want. This is what entertains people and what gets listeners. And so it's become a serious issue. And I think uh, Catherine touched on some very strong points here that, that we're going to have to deal with one way or another. You know, I've become convinced that we've talked about this. I've become convinced that, uh, that, that you can't deal with this from the, from the top down, that the only way to deal with it is to have a citizens who, and Christians who are demanding better, who are not, uh, who are not satisfied and are not willing to be fed this kind of corrosive rhetoric. And, you know, for as long as we're willing to make excuses for it, for as long as we're, uh, willing to accept it as long as we agree with the policy end, then this vicious cycle is not going to to run out. Uh, this this will this will only accelerate the, the the trolling and the smugness will uh will continue to uh, uh try and best one another. Uh and again I I want folks to understand that this isn't ha- this isn't happening without incentives uh, being provided, without uh, money being given from the average citizen to support these kinds of this kind of engagement. And it doesn't have to be supported. She ends the article by saying, don't feed the trolls. And too, too often we feed the trolls. We retweet what they put out. Uh, we we kind of copy or parrot what we hear certain commentators say when they're not communicating in a way that's constructive. And so, again, to your point, a lot of the onus comes on us to change things to not respond to those who are acting in this way. But we have to have the desire to do it. Uh, I agree that some of the most entertaining politicians and commentators can be the ones who are being vitriolic and who are making, you know, just being provocative. But at some point, we have to stop either responding or saying, look, this isn't what we want to hear. This isn't what we want. Uh, and until we do that, I, I believe right. it, it continues. We got we to say uh, we want to be entertained by entertainers, <laughs> not not by people who are right. uh, posing themselves as uh, as those with something significant to say uh, in terms of public discourse. So uh, uh, so it's it's been eye-opening to me to see it i think it should be eye-opening to to us 
when you bring in the international uh, perspective on this and, and sort of the way that Russia and, and other foreign entities identify these weaknesses. I mean, it's almost like a C.S. Lewis-like fiction, <laughs> fictional book. I mean, like it should really be eye-opening to us to see that a foreign entity uh, identified these weaknesses in uh, in how we consume media and how we're thinking about politics and saw it as something to exploit. And uh, at some point, just as a matter of self-interest, we, we really need to get our souls in, in order. Uh, Justin, uh, I think that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, March Madness is picking up this week. I'm, I'm excited. University of Buffalo, uh, my, my hometown school made it in this year. They're 13 seed. They're, uh, they're playing Arizona, which is going to be a tough matchup. You, you got a team you're rooting for. Yeah, well, for you, I just hope that doesn't end the same way that the Buffalo Bills ended. But, um, for me, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to go with any team from the SEC. Man, that was, um, both, I'm sorry, yeah, it's, man, I'm that, was both smug, that was both smug and trolling. That was, that was smug. smug. Trolling. We just, <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was, a, I just went in on trolls and, and folks being smug and, and did the same thing. Uh, <laughs> but what better place to talk trash? Talking about sports, yeah, not right, about politics. Exactly. How about that? Maybe it that's what we need. Let's do this in sports. <laughs> it definitely has. A, there's nothing like going against the the teams that one of your friends are going exactly against, just so right. you can talk trash. I mean, that's part of the whole. That's part of the whole thing. And for me, it's honestly very hard for me to keep up with college basketball these days. Back in the day, I feel like I knew all 64 teams knew a player on each team and now it's a lot tougher but like you i kind of try to watch the watch a little bit of the tournaments and do my best yeah. guesswork but I'm, I'm hoping the sec uh somebody in the sec pulls it out unfortunately vanderbilt uh didn't even come close to making it so i'm i don't really have a dog in the fight all right folks uh as always we uh, love being able to share with you uh make sure to hit us up uh on at church politics even though i'm not on uh twitter for another a uh, couple couple weeks we'll make sure to engage with you there and then also uh, please review uh review the podcast on iTunes it'll help us to spread the word uh, uh especially uh, after we were able to have Cinder Langford and Cinder Coons on last week we hope to bring you a uh, special guest in the weeks ahead until we see you uh, next Tuesday this is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney. Have a great week, y'all. I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment. In the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can you handle it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.